Hello and welcome to Meet the Education Researcher. This is a podcast from the Faculty of Education at Monash University and here we talk with researchers in and around the faculty about their current reading, writing and thinking. So welcome to another interview in our series of Meet the Education Researcher podcast. My name is Neil Selwyn. I work in the Faculty of Education, Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. And the aim of these interviews is simple. We spend 15 minutes or so getting to know what research is in and around the faculty are currently up to. So today I'm joined by George Siemens, one of the biggest names in the world of e-learning. He's best known as one of the original instigators of the MOOC, author of the Connectivist Model of Digital Learning and much, much more. Good morning, George. Morning, Neil. Now let's start with big picture stuff. I mean, beyond any specific topics and questions in development, what's your work really about? What's the big questions, the big issues that you're addressing? Probably the biggest question I'm interested in is what does it mean to be human in a digital age? And looking at that question specifically from a learning and a knowledge development angle. So, I mean, where does that take you? What does it mean to be human in a digital age? Could take you in a million different directions. What is it about learning? Sure. So about learning and education, I think the focus is really about understanding how is the learning process changing? How is the nature of knowledge changing and evolving, and in very practical ways that might cash out into, let's say you and I right now, when we talk about learning and learning in teams, when we use media as an aid to that learning process, it becomes an enabler. But we're moving, I believe, to a space where the technology itself will be a co-agent, not simply an enabler. And all of a sudden, when we talk about something like distributed cognition, we're talking about me, you, a few other colleagues, and an algorithm and a robot. And so we have this, uh, this techno-socio uh, distributed learning model. And so the question then becomes, how do we prepare for that? How mm. do we prepare, say, when we are hearing at least that AI is going to take over many of the cognitive tasks that professionals like doctors and people in industry such as uh, the stock market or you know, financial analysts or lawyers, if an AI model can outperform the capabilities of human beings, what's left for us? So a critical question for me around what does it mean to be human is that digital, technical, uh, distributed uh, form of intelligence, and how do we prepare learners to be participants in that? So it's not using technology to do the same old things. It's using technology to do things that are completely kind of unimaginable at the moment. I mean, this is kind of very future-looking stuff. Yeah, and I think as much technology as, uh, which is hard to imagine, but it's technology as an agent rather than as an enabler. Yeah. Because we're so used to saying, you know, technology is, it's just a tool. I mean, we hear it and, and I know you're, you're thinking your work as well. You're familiar or at least articulate that it isn't. I mean, there's a lot of things that get dragged in when we bring a tool in. I think very much that same model is one that we face in, in a corporate or a learning environment or a, a, in a healthcare system. It's not just the doctor interacting with me. She's interacting with an algorithm or a robot or something. And so how do you start to think about if that's how we're going to build knowledge in the future, how do we prepare learners to participate in that? And I think much of my argument lately has been as we turn to, I mean, there's so many words, 21st century skills, uh, soft skills, non-cognitive skills, pick a term, but it's really about these being skills, Mm. these attributes of who we are rather than what we know, because technology can, in theory, always outknow us. So hence the focus on what does it mean to be human? I mean, these are huge issues. What's your modus operandi for actually kind of addressing these? I mean, you don't seem to be a person that's happy just to get a little research grant, write a few papers. I mean, you seem to work at scale and at speed. I think for me, it's a terrific question and very hard to answer because some of the projects we're working on now is we have an NSF grant together with colleagues at Carnegie Mellon where we're looking at 
the ways in which large-scale communication influences how we build knowledge together. But that doesn't emphasize the technology as much. We finished a project recently with uh, with Gates funding that brought together about uh, eight different universities across the U.S. and three different states. So California, Georgia, and Arkansas. And the goal of that project was to really understand how do we move research in some of the things we are just talking about into practice in a classroom. Mm. But even then, the question ultimately, I think, becomes systemic in a lot of ways. And, and this is the problem that's so challenging is we have a university system that was created to serve the needs of a particular era. And, you know, it's a very Vygotskyan sense. We, we build artifacts that are that carry with them the culture, the context, the sociology, uh, sociality of a particular era. Now, all of a sudden, we're here and we're saying we can do very different things with technology, but we have a system where we're still squeezing the technology into it. And, you know, often it's about if you let your mind run a little bit and say, what if we didn't have any of those legacy constraints? What if we didn't have courses? How would we teach? What if we didn't have the current faculty student model? How would we teach? Uh, you know, and some have played with this. You know, your good old uh, radicals like Illich and uh, Freer and others have talked about what this might look like. But we're getting some very unique technological affordances that are largely underdeployed in in practical learning settings. So in some ways, you're looking to rebuild or reimagine education, education systems. And so you're getting industry grants and setting up labs and thinking on a really, really big scale. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I think, I mean, that, that is exactly the goal. So I'll give you one example. And this is something a colleague, uh, Dragan Gasovich, and I have been working on for a number of years, but it's this idea of a personal learning graph. Because if it, so much of what we do educationally centers on curriculum. We develop curriculum and the curriculum is what faculty are experts in. So we pull together all these resources and these, this content we think students need to know and we give it to the students. We don't know how students sitting in the seat in front of us or students sitting halfway down or students sitting at the back of the classroom. I don't know what she knows. Mm. I don't know what he knows. And so instead, I focus on my curriculum and on my content. But it's a tremendously inefficient way, especially in an age where we no longer are the, the ones that restrict access to knowledge because I can talk about a statistical concept in a classroom and a student can go take a MOOC on it that evening through edX from the person at Berkeley that developed the particular and you know analytics method that we just talked about yeah, in the yeah. classroom. So suddenly students have far greater agency, far greater control. And so it's about starting with understanding our students and what they've learned formally and informally and so on. So, so it starts with a personal learning graph where we begin to know our students in a more systemic way. It then moves into breaking our curriculum down into something. In the U.S., we call them competencies. I know in Australia, they have a different meaning, but something at an outcomes or at a granular level, that's not course level. And if we can then, when people work in industry, live their lives, become parents, learn new skills, if we could take what they're doing in those environments and assess that, you know, write that to a student's personal learning graph and then assess that learning graph against curriculum in a particular university. We'd be able to tell a student at any point in their academic career, you know, you're 62% of your way to being a psychologist, you're 30% of your way to being a botanist, you're 42% of your way to being a chemist, and give people choices that say, we don't need you to fit into our boxes. Our boxes have to react to your learning graph. So this idea of agency, giving individuals choice, I'm really interested in what the politics are behind all of this. I mean, what are the values and the kind of ideals that you're trying to pursue through all of this? And on some levels, it's really about the centering capabilities of technology. And it has a twofold attribute from the way I look at it. On the one hand, networks always break things down into smaller pieces. So we, we saw this, you know, back to the days of Napster, and it was an album became a song. Mm. 
And more recently, we see uh, a book, a textbook can become just an individual PDF chapter download, or it can become a 10-minute YouTube lecture by the faculty member that wrote the text. And so networks break things down. But fundamentally, learning is a coherence-generating process, which means when I learn something, what I'm essentially doing is creating a network of how the pieces fit together for me conceptually. And so in a situation like that, I think the challenges or the, the opportunities that we face is to look at how networks alter much of our relationships. And agency is the central attribute because now I can choose. I can decide what I need to do. I don't need to rely on someone else. So to get a, you know, the Kantian notion of what is enlightenment, and enlightenment was the ability to do for yourself what others have done for you previously – I think when we talk about enlightenment from a learning end, sort of a learning enlightenment, it's the same thing. It's about you being able to do for yourself what a teacher or a faculty member had to do for you in the past. And so this idea of networks, I mean, you focus a lot on openness and open networks. I mean, what does open mean to you? In a network sense, in a learning sense, uh, openness, I think, means essentially that we have the ability to connect our pieces of learning from different spaces of life into a central profile or a central, you know, like a personal learning graph, as I mentioned. Openness means that we have ready access to expertise to validate the learning that we have. Openness means that we can get a hold of content and educational resources. So MOOCs, for example, and I know they currently have a bad name, but what MOOCs represent is more consequential than what they are in, in a university environment mm. right now. And what they represent, I think, is the university grappling with ways to incorporate digital technologies into how we teach and learn and how is the relationship with the student and the teacher and the institution, even corporate environments, changed. So openness is essentially the ability for us to create new futures that have limited constraints by the legacies of the systems. Now, I was going to ask you about MOOCs, massive open online course. I don't want to get into the backstory of it. I'm not really interested in the difference between ex-MOOCs and CMOOCs. But personally, I mean, you're kind of known as one of the instigators What's your personal experience of it? Or well, looking at it from the outside, it seems that it just rapidly spun out of control and was this mad moment. I mean, what was it like being in the inside? You know, it was fascinating in a number of ways. Uh, so first of all, when I look at, you know, MOOCs and the impact that they've had, considering how many universities play in the MOOC space, we've seen you know, right now, I believe it's about 120 million students globally. If you bring in the Chinese MOOCs that have registered for a MOOC. We've had billions of dollars globally invested, either directly in terms of hard cash from venture capital or universities investing, and a lot of soft dollars invested by faculty time and resources put in. So I think it's fascinating to see that one of the university's first big attempts to grapple with technologies actually ended up reflecting much of the existing course structure. Mm. We still use courses. We still had the faculty expert and and the, you know, a lot of students still wanted to pay and get certificate <laughs> recognition, right? So it's, that part surprised me a little bit. What I find more interesting is uh, that I look at MOOCs not as the, the end. They're, they're just a process of the university becoming a different system. And there's some negative pushback over the last while. I think some of the faculty that were a little bit tired of hearing MOOCs are going to change the world, they're quite happy to see MOOCs not changing the world. Yeah, yeah. But they were never the thing. They, it was always a representation of the digital influence uh, of education. I remember even at the time when MOOCs blew up in 2011 with the uh, New York Times and others sort of diving into it, and it was the best thing ever. And Silicon Valley put dollars, big dollars into it. And university presidents could get on keynote speaking tours by saying, yay, we're doing MOOCs. Even at that time, I remember writing that this isn't the thing. 
this is a symptom of the thing, but if you invest in this without recognizing what it represents, you're wasting your money. You're going to put in $10 million developing MOOCs, but you haven't re-architected your, your faculty skill sets. You haven't redesigned how you teach learning. You haven't reassessed instructional and assessment practices, and the list goes on. So looking back, do you feel kind of proud of starting this all off, or are you having your head in your hands thinking, oh my God, they didn't get it right? I, I think in a lot of ways, I couldn't really care less, <laughs> to be honest. Uh, there's a statement, and one of the things I find educationally is it's very easy to start getting a little bit of an ego and get tied to an identity yeah, or yeah, tied yeah. to a concept. But um, I, I think in fairness, if I wouldn't have run MOOCs with Stephen Downs, somebody else would have. I, you know, There's some inevitability to these things. Sure. And I often turn to Kaufman's idea of the adjacent possible, right? where science and do, or you know, evolutionary biology way, uh, a domain advances at a point, and then it's just inevitable that the next thing will happen. So I don't see, you know, it's nice to say, okay, yeah, we, we ran the first MOOC, but at the end of the day, they would have happened regardless. If you tie your ego to something as, as reasonably insignificant as a MOOC, then you probably have some bigger identity issues, <laughs> you know, as a whole. But I think what, what MOOCs do represent, and, and I certainly encourage faculty to focus on or people who care about this stuff, is that they represent a process of change that is emerging quickly. And it's very important for faculty to be in that conversation rather than to push it. Because if you aren't in it, uh, if you push it to the side, then others who may have different interests take over. And we've seen that already with a lot of startups, with a lot of corporate activity in the learning space. That's the way it's going. It's the digitization of yeah, learning yeah. and education. And I'm, I'm a little concerned and have been for a number of years that faculty in many cases have marginalized their voice, which often is a social agency, society enabling voice, and have allowed a number of entities take greater control in the university sector that have very different interests than the social societal well-being. Yeah, yeah. It becomes just a bureaucratic kind of um, structure. Now, I wasn't going to label you as the MOOC person. I wasn't going to do that at all. <laughs> MOOCs right. were very much a feature of the late 2000s. We're now in the late 2010s. I mean, what ideas are currently getting you going? What's currently getting you excited? I think I'm very interested in, uh, this is a sloppy concept and it hasn't become clear enough to me yet exactly what it is. But I'll call them being skills. It's the one domain that computers can't quite succeed at yet. And that is a lot of the attributes that you know, may end up, if we look at human history in a number of big chunks and a very big chunk. So one is the, the physical era where we had to work with our hands. We had to dig the earth with our hands. And then we turned into over a period of thousands of years into more of an intellectual era where we could start to use books to carry knowledge from one person to another or from one generation to another. And then really the internet was still largely a part of that, the intellectual age. Mm. And as computers now, whether you, depending on how much you believe in the AI machine learning model coming forward, we're at a stage now where we're entering what I would call a being age, where the technological systems around us are more intelligent than we are, so to speak, or nothing is, for example, capable of building a Boeing 787. It's a network of technologies and people, a system that can build a 787. So the human intelligence, that the, the stage we're in now, I believe, is around that those being attributes. And a lot of these terms, they're, they're easy, sort of hippie, buzzwordy kind of terms, you know, everything from wellness to well-being to to uh, you know mindfulness but essentially it's quite possible that uh, and the ideas with universal basic income and a number of these other attributes suggest that maybe we're going to enter this new explosion of human creativity where we aren't focusing just on what are we developing and learning cognitively but who are we becoming and what does our becoming look like yeah yeah so i think that's one area that that has a fair bit of interest but i'm also quite interested in systemic change and i've talked a little bit about personal learning graphs I think if we have personal learning graphs with properly mapped university curriculum with a clear mapping of labor market skills and mindsets, there are 
far more effective ways for us to take somebody who's in the labor market, gets reskilled due to automation, needs to get a new degree, goes back, and rather than doing a two-year master's, you know, she could finish her master's off in four months because it takes advantage of what she already knows. So we have to tweak the university system to enable people to participate in it in such a way that serves the dominant structure of information in society. Today. Yeah, so it's also it's lifelong and life-wide, and as you say, it's not this kind of like cookie-cutter way of distributing higher yeah, education. Exactly, and it's not new. I mean, when you look at it, you know, people have been talking about a lot of these concepts for a long time, for decades, if mm. not more. I mean, I look at mastery learning back in the you know, 60s and the 70s and competency-based education. That, that was you know, a lot of discussion going on with it. What's perhaps different today is we can actually do it at scale technologically, yeah, yeah. whereas we couldn't in the past. Right. Two very quick questions. I wanted to talk to you about keynotes. You were an international keynote. You are an international keynote. But I, you blogged a couple of years ago about the frustrations of keynoting for education audiences, the demand for gurus who can explain everything. You seem to be getting a bit bummed out by that. I think for me it was, uh, you know, we very much want to, I'm not quite sure how I'd best word this, but, you know, in the education sector, we like to have people who have answers. And I've long had the view that, you know, networks have the answers. And so for me, it was very frustrating to go to a conference, do a keynote and uh, try and communicate something and then have a response and not knowing what the impact was, not knowing where it went or what happened with yeah, it. Yeah. So it was really the same thing about this, the MOOC conversation that we had, where if that becomes your identity, it, it's actually distracting. So one professional society I was involved with early on in informing, uh, you know, after I was finished with my, you know, serving as, as a, you know, early president, I just made a conscious decision to not attend for a number of years simply because there is a desire to have people with answers rather than for us to have conversational engagement as the pathway to answers. We give certain people too much credit and not enough to ourselves and to our own networks. And you mentioned before about ego and personality and academia, yeah. and it's very difficult to divorce the idea from the individual. Exactly. Now, the second thing I was really interested in was your, um, following you on Twitter, you come across as quite unimpressed by a lot of education research. <laughs> now, what is it that really gets your goat when it comes to reading education research? I think education sits at a really difficult point. In, on the one hand, it's pragmatic and it makes an impact in people's lives. It's focused on really important things like equity and fairness and giving people opportunities that perhaps we didn't know they weren't getting because of socioeconomic status or, or any number of factors that impact them. I think what gets my goat educationally is when activism is passed off as research, and uh, which activism is needed. We there you need to have a focused attempt to change inefficiencies and inequalities and unfairness within a system. But it does a disservice to what research is when we begin to become sloppy around what exactly is this thing or what exactly is the method. Yeah, that and we're the slippage at. from evidence into kind of uh, yeah, as you say, opinion. To opinion. Well, and it's difficult. So there, there's, I mean. I don't want to get too too deep into some of the, the sort of the philosophical, even the epistemological orientations around it, but it's this view, you know, are all beliefs valid? Or should we, for example, say that there is a scientific way to look at the world and how the world works that's different than from what's maybe communicated in some spiritual or religious traditions? You know, should we trust that the the model of who humanity is can be better addressed through an evolutionary lens, or do we need to address that through a religious lens. And I think those are the kinds of questions that, for me, where, where you begin to move into other epistemologies, but you still want to lay claim to authority with it, or where you, in some cases, deny the authoritative value of certain mindsets 
or methods, because I think it's reasonably fair to say things like the scientific method have changed the quality of life for billions of people. Whereas today, in you know our generation, we're living longer you know, by a factor of two than people did even 120 years ago. And that didn't happen by accident. It happened by a sustained application of a method for exploring and understanding knowledge. So then we have to look at and say, if that's what research is, then how does that differ from our attempts to generate equity within our society? And there's an overlap, there's an interconnection, yeah, but yeah. I get frustrated when those two are obfuscated. <laughs> now, finally, you're making a move over to the University of South Australia. Why do you think so many international ed tech researchers are coming over to Australia? I mean, this was a country that was described by one of its own prime ministers as the arse end of the world. I mean, <laughs> is it the promise of better coffee? Is it escaping Trump? Why are you coming here? <laughs> it's all about the coffee. No, I, I think it's, uh, you know, a lot of the opportunities here, and I still have uh, you know, I have an appointment with uh, University of Texas ongoing, but I think a lot of the promise in Australia is there's a critical cluster of uh, very innovative practices. It's a university system that values the appeal of international students, international populations, a lot of uh, interesting work happening around all aspects of the student experience, around all aspects of research. And so, uh, you know, that's a big appeal. Obviously, the coffee and the beaches help as well. Yeah, it's a very polite answer. It's still a hell of a long way away from anywhere else. Really excellent. Thanks very much for taking the time to talk. Thanks for stopping by. I hope your time down under is well spent. Good luck. All right. Thank you.